In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 19. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Hey, I know you like storytelling podcasts. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. And I know there are plenty of them out there vying for your attention. So I'd like to recommend a new one to you. You may be familiar with the blindingly talented writer Mac Rogers, the creator of hit fiction podcasts like The Message, Life After, and Steal the Stars. Mac has done it again with his new sci-fi thriller, Give Me Away. They call the spaceship that crashed in the Nevada desert the Ghost House because it screams. The screams of thousands of extraterrestrial political prisoners uploaded into its horrific mainframe. The only way to free them is to transfer them into the bodies of humans willing to share their minds with an alien second consciousness. But who would volunteer for that? Graham Shapiro, divorced and adrift at age 50, is one of the first to raise his hand. Give Me Away follows Graham's journey into a world of radical hospitality, one which will touch everything and everyone in his life. There's a link in the show notes, and the first four episodes are available ad-free on podcast platforms everywhere. So delve into the audio adventure. And speaking of audio adventures, it seems this strange adventure I'm on with Joanna continues to mystify us. Upon returning to her bookstore, The Whispering Pages, after her time away, Joanna found a large box of books left at the store's rear door. She told me this isn't unusual. No one likes to throw books in the trash, so if someone is moving or clearing out an old house, there are often books left over which are left on the doorsteps of bookstores in the same way a litter of stray puppies gets left at the door of a pet store or vet's office. Joanna told me the books all appear old, with worn covers, some bound in leather, and all with interesting titles. Some were classics, like Moby Dick, while some were esoterica, with titles like The Nebulous Wisp from the Seventh Dimension. But here's where it gets weird. As she started flipping through the books, all of them, every single book had blank pages. She said the pages were as old and weathered as the covers, so this wasn't some sort of modern prank with old covers affixed to blank books. No, Joanna told me it looked like every page of every book had simply been erased, as if the words were no longer valid or needed. And then, in the very last book, she found the pages not just blank, but cut away. Like in the movies, where a book's pages have been hollowed out to conceal a gun or a key or whatnot. 
But this book only had a small cutout, which held a thumb drive. The drive itself had a name on it, handwritten and faded. She thinks it reads L.P. Hernandez. Upon examining its contents, she found just one audio file. The folder it was in is named Words No Longer Matter. And when Joanna sent it to me, I was surprised to hear a story with voices that I swear sound identical to Jesse Cornett, Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Mick Wingert, Jeff Clement, Sarah Thomas, Ellie Hirschman, and Sarah Olivia. So, is it true? Do words, written words, no longer matter? Is it all about audio and what we hear? If so, then listen. Listen closely to the words, the sounds, and the knocking after midnight. You're listening to KOWB, Hamlin's Cowboy Radio Station. I'm your old pal Duke, and I'll be your guide through the dark hours. You hear that, folks? That's either the Lord coming down off the Rockies or a warning you probably should double-check your car windows are rolled up. If you're a long-time listener, welcome back. To my trucker friends on I-70, thanks for tuning in. Congrats on surviving Kansas. Unless you're headed east, that is. Stay with me until it gets fuzzy, and I'll try to make it worth your while. We're coming up on midnight, so why don't we give Miss Patsy Cline a spin and do it with class? That was a once-a-generation voice, wasn't it? Perfect for a stormy night, don't you think? Now, if you're lonely or just have a story to share, give me a call at the station. If it's a good one, I might play it on air. Take it away, Patsy. Let's see here. Weather. Okay. Howdy, folks. This is Duke with your five-day forecast. It's that time of year again. Should see a chance for afternoon storms just about every day. Some could be severe with small hail and gusts around 50. Temperatures will be steady. Howdy, friends. Duke with your five-day. Good chance for thunderstorms in the afternoon through Friday. Slight chance of some of these storms could be severe with a small hail and wind gusts north of 50. Temperatures should peak at about 80 with lows in the upper 50s. Oh. (laughs) Hello, caller. Duke with KOWB Cowboy Radio. What's got you up late on a Sunday night? Hey, Duke, it's Clancy. Hey, Clancy. How are you? Uh, Fair to Midland. Wanted to ask you maybe you could put out an APB for Vince. Uh, Something spooked him. Probably the storm. Was gonna move him to the porch, but he's gone. Yanked a stake out of the ground. Uh, Good news is, you couldn't probably hear him coming. 
Was that the Pyrenees or the boxer? Boxer. Hopefully he'll be back in the morning, but if anyone sees him, I'd appreciate them giving him a dry spot to sleep tonight. <sighs> sure thing, Clancy. I'll get the word out. <clears throat> Caller, you're on with Duke. Duke? Hey, it's a, a Peggy from the post office. Oh, hey, Peg. Don't you have the morning shift? Yeah, I do. Was something on your mind? Yeah, Duke, sorry. I, I tried to call the police. Peggy, you okay? Well, no one picked up the station. Daryl must be out on patrol. There's, there's a man at my door. How's that? It's a man in a suit, Duke. He, he knocked on the door and he's just standing there. He's got an overcoat on, like from the 1940s. And one of those hats with brims. So I can't, can't see his face. Uh, did you say anything? Where's Earl? No, I didn't say anything, Duke. It's midnight. No good reason a man in a suit should be knocking on a door after midnight. Earl's on the shift now, so it's just me. If he knocked and left, I wouldn't be worried about it, but he's not leaving. What can you see, Peggy? Uh, through the peephole? Uh, Duke, hold on a minute. The phone cord won't stretch that far. Uh, Peggy, l let me put you on hold for a moment. <clears throat> that was Charlie Pride singing it like only he can. We've got Dolly and George Jones still to come. <laughs> That's if the power doesn't go out first. I say, folks, if you see a scared boxer running around, let him sleep on your porch tonight. Old Clancy would certainly appreciate it. And if you throw Vince a bone, I'm sure Clancy will throw one to you when you come in for an oil change. And we'll take a quick break and then get right back to the music. Peggy? Peggy, you there? Peggy? I, I turned on the floodlight. He didn't have a face. He, he backed away from the light, put his hands up like he knew it was brighter, but couldn't tell where it was coming from. Now he's it, walking around the yard like he's trying to find a way in. Peggy, now you, you stay safe, okay? Uh, it's probably just a knucklehead kid with a mask. I don't think so, Duke. Doesn't move like a kid. Oh! What is it? There's one at the back door. Oh, shit. Hang on a minute, Peggy. Friends, we've got plenty of still guitar and sad songs to keep you company. Speaking of company, Peggy from the post office called, and it sounds like there might be some teenagers trying to spook her. If you're in the area of Spruce Drive, maybe lend her a hand before the storm hits. Drive by and flash your brights or honk your horn. That should do the trick. 
Peggy? Hello? Peggy? What are you? What, what are you? What in the world? You're on the air with Duke. Is that you, Peggy? Duke? No, it's Jorge. I'm a first-time caller. What were you saying about teenagers? I'm a couple of streets over from Peggy. Oh, hi, Jorge. Yeah, there's something that's definitely happening on that street. It sounds like there was someone dressed up in a suit knocking on the front door, and then another showed up at the back door. Well, they may have gotten inside, I don't know. What did they look like? Did she say? I said they were dressed in overcoats. Had suits underneath. Something about a face being a... Oh, hold on. All right, you there? There's one outside my house, Duke. He knocked right about midnight. I, I didn't answer. It didn't feel right. Still there? Yeah, still there. Stands sort of funny. Almost looks like a mannequin. Very still. Just like the wind blowing his coat some. Is it just the one? Let me check out the back. Ah! What? What is it? There's one in the tree. What? I wouldn't have seen him, but the lightning flashed just then. I can't really see him now. He's, uh... Turning his head back and forth? I can't really see him that well. Let's see if I can get a better look. Jorge, hold on. The phones are lit up. Let me see if this is more widespread. I might have to go live. <clears throat> You're on with Duke. Duke, it's Jim. I'm across the street from Peggy. Had the radio on to fall asleep to when you asked for help. Thought I could shuffle over there right quick. Yeah? There's one in the driveway. One? Yeah, person dressed up in, I don't know, an old raincoat or something. And what's he doing? Never mind me. Tell Peggy I can see one on her roof. There's someone on the roof? There was. Gone now. They're all over the neighborhood, Duke. I've seen maybe half a dozen of them in the past couple minutes. Oh, hold on. <clears throat> Sorry for the interruption, folks. It sounds like there's some widespread prank going on in the southeast part of town. If someone can get in touch with Deputy Daryl, I might need to get him to look into it. Until we figure out what this is, it's probably best not to engage. But uh, if you have more information to share about people knocking on doors, call me at the station. As always, that's 555-KOWB.
Now, I don't normally do this, but I'm gonna take a call live to see if we can get more information. You're live with Duke. Please keep it clean. Hank let one inside. He was watching TV downstairs while I was listening to the radio getting ready for bed. I should have told him about it, but I didn't think they would come to our house. I'm upstairs in the closet. I don't know what to do. There was an awful scream. More like a fart. Then the front door shut. And I can hear Hank walking around down there. At least, I think it's Hank. Caller, oh, where are you? I'm on Falcon. North side of town? Yeah. Oh, so they're up there, too. He's coming up the stairs. Hank, or... I don't know. Just, just hold on. It'll be okay. Just... Caller? <laughs> Caller? It, it doesn't sound like Hank. Do you need help? Are you okay? <laughs> I... 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 Caller, what's your house number? Deputy Daryl or anyone else with the means. We've got a situation in Falcon. If you know of a couple of... Oh, oh no. He's going to the kids' room. I'm, uh... Not sure what to make of that, folks. Uh, this... This, uh, this doesn't feel like a prank. If it is, <laughs> you got me good. <laughs> uh, I really need someone to get in touch with, uh, Deputy Daryl. Jesus! Uh, uh, folks, uh, well, we're gonna put the music on hold till we figure this thing out. I'm afraid people might be in danger. Let's take another call. You're on with Duke. Go ahead, caller. Duke, I was wrong. It's okay. It's okay. Peggy, is that you? Uh, what happened? <laughs> it's okay, Duke. It's okay. Peggy? It doesn't sound like you. What happened? Who were they? Peggy. It's okay. It's okay. 
No, 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 I don't think so. You get somewhere safe and you... You stay there until we figure this out. Now, folks, uh, don't answer the door. Don't let these people in. Uh, if it's a joke, it ain't funny. <clears throat> We've got a storm overhead. No good reason for folks to be outside, which means it must be a bad one. Who are they? Can anyone tell me that? Are they local? If not, how did they get into town? And where are they staying? Hey, you're on with Duke. Pissori, they aren't human, Duke. They aren't. I, I, I saw one up close. There's, there's something covering its face, like where its face should be. Not a mask exactly, but but I don't think it could see me. Why? Uh, what are they? I didn't see it until it was just a few feet from me, and I, I just froze in place. I was so scared, I just froze. I dropped the flashlight, and it rolled away. It was it was like it knew I was there, but it, it couldn't see me. It, it didn't have eyes, Duke. Or a mouth. But there was something beneath it. Well, I wouldn't call it skin. The flesh, like, caught it, like, indirectly. And the skin, the, the flesh over the place where the eyes should have been pulsed. And it made this noise. Kind of a clicking sound. And what do you think they are? I don't know, Duke. But I think they're attracted to movement, like vibrations, maybe. I think the rain and the thunder threw it off. Like, uh, he couldn't find me with, with all of the interference. Well, that's the best information that we've had so far, folks. But if you find yourself near one of these things, you just stay still. Until we have more to go on, that's the best advice I can give. Jorge, is there anything else you can share? Don't let them in. I think one got in next door. What happened? I don't know his name, but he's a bigger guy, like a, a strange fellow. Well, it looks like he's trying to climb onto his roof. He doesn't even have a ladder. He's just, like, clawing at the bricks. He looks confused, like, like he doesn't know what to do. Even if it wasn't raining, he wouldn't be able to get up like that. Ow. He's scratching at his throat. What is it? I think he saw me. Shit. I think he saw me. There was something in the front of his shirt. Blood, maybe. I don't know. Damn. I'm gonna go check the locks again. Just don't let them in. <clears throat> Thank you, Jorge. Now, folks, uh, it sounds like I have a visitor. I'm gonna take a peek through the peephole, see if I can't get some first-hand information for you. Please, double-check your locks. If you find yourself around one of these, uh, things, and just do your best to stay still. And that's all we really have to go on at the moment. I'll be right back, folks.
Come on out and celebrate Frontier Days at the Hamlin Event Center. We'll have barrel racing, calf roping, and rattlesnake roundup for the kids. Experience life as the settlers did. Learn how to tan a hide and turn shoe leather into jerky. Archery, funnel cakes, bobbing for apples. And speaking of apples, Mrs. Dubois is offering up two dozen candy apples for auction to benefit the mayor's revitalized downtown initiative. This Saturday at the event center. Doors open at eight. Come on out and celebrate Frontier Days at the Hamlin Event Center. We'll have barrel racing, calf roping, and rattlesnake roundup for the kids. Experience. knocking at your door. You let him inside, right? <clears throat> it's the neighborly thing to do. Especially with a storm. Everything is okay. Just open the door. It doesn't hurt, folks. Not a lot. <laughs> it's just a little sting. <laughs> When it comes to disturbing audio, the things we sometimes experience with phone calls can be upsetting. Now imagine if you're a 911 dispatcher. Dealing with people during their most traumatic experiences can be emotionally scarring. And in this tale, shared with us by author Jessica Saul, we meet one dispatcher who is trying to help someone in dire need. And she would help if she only knew where the person is calling from. Performing this tale are Wafia White and Peter Lewis. So listen for the clues. Try to help if you can. There's still hope as long as things haven't become exanimate.
For 17 years, I was an emergency call operator. There's nothing I can say about the job that you haven't already heard before. It's not for everyone. It takes a lot of strength. You gotta have tough skin. All of that is true, along with the anecdote about, I thought I heard everything until. My until happened in September of last year. It was 3 a.m. when the call came through. Nine one one, what's your emergency? There is something in the street. What's in the street? Can you give me an address? It's a shape that's looming. It's coming towards me. Can you give me an address? I don't know where I am. It's dark. Everything is dark. There is one street light. I don't think it'll be lit much longer. Can you get somewhere safe? Nowhere is safe. The people in the houses are watching. They wanted to take me. We were unable to trace your call. Can you see any street signs or landmarks? It's, it's just a street. It goes on forever. The street light is flickering now. It's almost here. What's almost there? I won't know until it's here. But it's coming. And they're laughing at me now. Who's laughing at you? The people in the houses. They are laughing and waiting for it to take me. It's so much closer now. It won't be much longer. Stay on the line. We're still trying to locate you. You'll never find me before it's too late. Remains will be found in the coming days, and you'll know. You are not going to die. Please, try to take shelter. I never said death. I said remains. I... I don't understand. They want to make me like them. You will find what remains. The call cut out after that. At the last possible second, a location appeared on my screen. It was an approximate location, not an exact address, as is common with calls made by cell phones. The signal had to be triangulated to the nearest cell tower, which produced only a very general area to go off of. The location of the call was in the middle of nowhere, out in the boonies, on the very edge of town. It made sense that it would be poorly lit, as the caller had said, but he had mentioned houses, and there wasn't a single house on the map. The whole situation didn't sit right with me. However, there was nothing else I could do. The police were sent to investigate, and I was left to swallow the lump in my throat. As I arrived at work the next day, my fears were validated. The two officers who had gone to check out the call never came back. They had arrived 30 minutes after the call had ended, due to it being so out of the way. 
At 3.45 a.m., their last radio transmission came through. The officers had reported finding nothing. A dirt road, a street light, an overgrown cemetery, but not a living soul in sight. No corpses either. No remains. Nothing. Sometimes emergency operators never find out what happens with the calls we take. Even getting a little bit of information can be hard. It wasn't like that with my call. Everyone was talking, nervous and fearful of what could have possibly happened. More officers were being sent to investigate. In the meantime, I had to take calls and carry out business as usual. It was three hours into my shift when the rumor started. Whispers of the cop car being found abandoned with a blood trail leading from the vehicle and stopping clean. I heard that a body had been recovered, but it wasn't one of the officers. They suspected it was our mystery caller. The rest of my shift crawled by. Time practically seemed to stop. It was hard to focus on the mundane calls when a situation of X-Files magnitude is taking place. Nevertheless, I persevered, and soon enough, my shift was over. As I was gathering my belongings to leave, my hopes for a good night's sleep were crushed. I was informed by a co-worker that the body they found at the scene was missing from the morgue, and the blood on the ground had tested positive for both of the missing officers. Two presumed dead, one missing corpse, and zero hours of sleep later, I found myself back at the call center. The steady trickle of information seemed to have gone dry. There was no news of the situation at all. I was working the graveyard shift again, with only a few other operators in the room with me. At almost exactly 3 a.m., a call came through. Nine one one. What's your emergency? You lost the remains. Excuse me. You let them wander off. What are you talking about, sir? You thought he was dead, but dead things can't walk on their own, can they? Sir, what is your emergency? Oh, no emergency. Just checking in. What do you want? To tell you how you mustn't blame him. He really hated the taste of pig. I don't... When the soul is gone, but the body walks. What remains? The location on my screen was the same as before. I called over a superior and explained what had just happened. Then I left. Only, I didn't go home. There was no point. I was well past the possibility of sleeping soundly anytime soon. So I did the next best thing. I drove out to the boonies, where the calls came from. None of it was planned. I don't even think I realized where I was going until I was there. Until I was looking at the crime scene tape 
in the blood-stained grass. It was nearly pitch black, save for one flickering streetlight. I didn't want to look at the crime scene. It had already been combed over and analyzed to death. There was something else out there. Something that hadn't been found yet. Something that wanted me to find it. Using my phone flashlight to navigate, I wandered the area. It was dumb girl in a horror movie level of stupid. But I was too sleep deprived and adrenaline filled to care. It wasn't until I tripped over something and landed on my back that I actually started to get scared. Jutting out from the earth at a crooked angle was a tombstone that looked like it was 100 years old. I had stumbled upon the cemetery that the missing officers had reported finding. Lifting my phone from where it had fallen beside me, I scanned the area with its light. Mausoleums. Lining the edge of the cemetery with the dirt road on the other side was a row of decrepit mausoleums. Stone houses. The people in the houses are watching. I don't remember running back to my car or even driving home. I quit my job after that, and I slept with the lights on for almost a month. Sometimes I think I should have kept my job. A 911 call is so much less personal than having your home phone ring at 3 a.m. And ring. And ring. And ring. In the days before 911 emergency calls, there was another well-known method of signaling distress, Morse code. A series of beeps representing each letter, it was used for decades to send messages across the miles. These days, Morse code is all but obsolete. But in this tale, shared with us by author Yarvelis Rogers, we meet a crew of fishermen who are familiar with Morse code, a little too familiar after an encounter with a mysterious SOS distress signal. Performing this tale are David Alt and Andy Cresswell. So even if you don't know Morse code, it's easy to recognize the code for SOS. It's just three dots, three dashes, three dots. Three dots, three dashes, three dots. The earworm lodged in my head repeats the rhythm endlessly. Each tone drips into my ear like water torture, keeping me awake and ever conscious of my upcoming death. My tomb has been blaring out the signal for at least two days now. 
A large fishing vessel in the North Sea. <laughs> That's what we received. The call of S.O.S. We had also been fishing, just a small crew of three looking for a modest catch of cod. There was Andy, Tony and myself. We hadn't known each other for very long. Andy, who owns the boat and had it licensed for fishing, put up an ad in the local paper saying he was looking for two people with boating experience to work with him. I needed a job and I had fished before, years ago, so I fit the bill. As far as I'm aware, the story is about the same for Tony. We had been working together a little over two months when we went on the trip that would beeline us straight to early graves. We had pretty much just gotten far enough out to sea where we planned to fish when we received an SOS signal on the radio. This was strange to us at the time as we only got the signal just as we could start to see the large ship on the horizon. It must have only been being transmitted short range, which, as Tony put it, is quite the cock-up for a distress call. Andy tried to respond to get details, but the only reply was the constant call for help. I was of the opinion we should call this into the Coast Guard, but Andy and Tony thought that the situation was obviously dire if they're not responding, and that they need immediate help. Two against one, and the ship owner being on the popular side meant we were going. I don't blame them at all for anything that happened afterwards. They really were trying to save people, and that's how they should be remembered. We reached the ship and shouted from our boat to see if anyone would respond to us, but we got no answer. Using one of the mooring ropes, we tied one end to our boat, and using a hook, Tony grappled the other end onto a railing on the ship's deck. He climbed up, tied the rope to secure our boat, and then Andy and I followed him up. The deck was a ghost town. We saw no crew, but otherwise nothing out of the ordinary. However, as Andy walked around to take a look, he suddenly slipped cartoonishly as if he had stepped on a banana peel. Tony and I couldn't help it. We burst out laughing. Uh, even Andy, despite his sore ass, chuckled to himself from the comic situation. We went over to help him up. He was fine, apart from his dignity. Christ. Imagine the last happy moment of your life is falling over like a prat. And we noticed what he had slipped on. It was hard to see, but in patches all over the deck were thin puddles of some kind of oil, nearly colourless but a slight greyish tint. Maybe a haul of fish had overturned onto the deck. Either way, we continued on, making sure to walk as if on black ice. As we made our way to the bridge, which we figured would be the best place to start, we noticed how foul the ship smelled. Fishing is a smelly business, but this was ungodly, like someone shoved two mackerel up my nose. The slippery oil was inside the ship's corridors too, so we had to keep treading carefully. We didn't see a single soul at this point still. We got to the bridge and opened the door and immediately heard the blips of Morse code. Inside, there was something on the floor in front of the active radio. We approached it, and it was what we thought was a large pile of clothes, a bunch of sailors' get-ups. 
Tony nudged it with his foot and... It... It jiggled. It appeared to slosh like a water balloon. Tony gave it another prod to spread it out. It was not a large pile of clothes, just one person's. And that person was still wearing them. The body of the sailor was flat and floppy. There was no solidity to it at all, like his skeleton had unzipped the flesh and and stepped out. His gaping expression showed that even his teeth were gone. There were dribbles of blood around the mouth, but all considering there was barely any. That's when I realised the remains jiggled because it still contained all its blood and organs. Someone, or something, had removed this guy's bones and only his bones. I guess the poor man had been frantically trying to make a proper distress call when he'd been... got. That would explain the short-range signal at least. Andy turned around and vomited and I decided to join in. (coughs) Tony just kept muttering astonished curses and shaking his foot like he was still trying to get the corpse off. (coughs) Jesus, you were right, Martin. We should have called it in. Bollocks to the Coast Guard, though. This needs the Navy or something. Let's hurry back to the boat. I agreed with Andy, spitting out the last of my breakfast, but I was cut off by the gasping sound of air rushing out of a pair of lungs. I turned around to see Tony, completely statue-like, with panic in his eyes. Before we could ask what was wrong, something like a hose wrapped around his neck and began to squeeze. Then, from around the corner behind him... Something slithered into sight. The thing that had caught Tony looked to me like a giant sea urchin. Dark grey and gelatinous, it was a ball-like creature about the size of a large man's torso with many writhing tendrils being used to drag its body around. At the back was a strange tail... It was a fat and more rigid tentacle, and honestly, it seemed to be doing it more harm than good as it lugged uselessly behind it. It would be futile to try and get it off Tony's throat. The tendril was covered in pulsing, hair-like spines that looked to be pumping venom into him. Andy and I ran. It didn't matter how slow the creature seemed to be, we sprinted. Many times we slipped and fell on the oil on the floors, the slimy trails the monster had left everywhere, but each time we got up and continued to sprint in a blind flight until we reached our boat. As we hurled ourselves onto our own deck, it was Andy's turn again to throw up whatever he had left. The two of us cried like newborns, fearful of the new world around us. I sobbed over Tony, but I think I sobbed more because I didn't understand... How could a thing like that exist? We figured it couldn't climb a rope, so we considered the boat to be safe ground. For an hour we sat in near silence, save for the occasional blubber or gagging. Our radio kept playing that fucking message that led us here. SOS! 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 Eventually, with a strange calm, Andy picked up our radio, carried it over to the side of the boat and dropped it into the water. 
After a deep sigh and with a hoarse, dehydrated voice, he announced his intentions to go back on the ship. I have to go back. Tony's death is on me. I had the wait to say we come here. That distress signal is going to draw in more folk to get killed by that thing. It needs to be turned off. Wait for me here. If I'm not back in an hour or you see that bastard, just sail off without me. I must admit, at first I wanted to just nod and do as he said, but that wouldn't have been right. Andy was being harsh on himself for Tony, and I said as such. I told him it would be better if we both went. One of us might have to distract the urchin while the other turns off the signal, which he reluctantly agreed was a good idea. As screwed as I am right now, as certain as I am that I am going to die, I do not regret going with Andy. Trying was the right thing to do. After 20 minutes of mental preparation, i.e. stalling, we both climbed back up to the ship. The urchin was nowhere to be seen on deck, so we slowly made our way back to the bridge, making sure as a team we covered as much of a field of view as possible. We got to the door to the bridge and I peeped in through its window. I could see Tony's body. His left leg appeared much thinner and must have started harvesting his bones to to eat, I suppose. The creature wasn't in sight, though, which unnerved us. We opened the door and went inside, looking carefully around for about five minutes before Andy made his way to the radio, with me following behind. Neither of us had worked on a large ship before. The radio was more complicated than we knew how to operate, so Andy had to think for a moment before doing anything. A moment was not enough time, because within it we heard a squelch and then realised that the urchin had not left the room. With a whip of tentacles, Andy fell to the ground, screaming as his legs were pulled from underneath him. The thing had managed to squish itself into a panel just below the radio terminal and ambush us. Like an octopus, the thing could force itself into anywhere as long as the space could occupy its hard tail. Andy, already paralysed, was no longer the target now, and the urchin pulled itself out and spilt towards me. Luckily, just above was a ventilation shaft with a gap between it and the ceiling of the bridge, and not too far off the ground. I leapt up, grabbed a hold of the top, and hoisted myself up. However, I was just slightly too slow. The urchin managed to brush a tendril against my leg, which was enough to stab me with its needles and inject me with venom. I managed to get up, but quickly the toxin spread throughout my body. It wasn't enough to paralyse me, but by God it hurts, and it takes a lot of energy to move. That was about 35 hours ago now. The urchin is too short to reach me by about two feet, but it has not left the room. It waits for me. I have not slept as the noises of the beast and the constant taunting shrill of the distress signal has kept me awake, as did Andy's pleading for death for the first hour. The venom's effects have not alleviated, and I am so very thirsty. 
but I do not think I will have the luxury of dying of dehydration, for I have figured out what the urchin does with the bones. Over the past few hours, the urchin has been processing the bones of my friends. It inserts one of its tentacles down the throat and somehow absorbs them through that, but not to eat. As the creature deflated Andy and Tony, one of its other tendrils appears to inflate. Like what I thought was its rigid tail, the thickening tentacle becomes another just like it. After about two hours, Andy and Tony are as flat as the sailor we found, and the urchin now has two solid appendages. It tests out the joint it has made halfway down each and then starts to clumsily fumble on the floor like a deer on ice. Slowly, its movements become more calculated and coordinated as it learns to stand. We've heard how disturbing sounds can be when they're far away. But when sounds are disturbingly close to you, and you're not sure what's causing them, that's when the horror increases exponentially. As we learn in this tale, shared with us by author Eddie Island, a college student is up late working on a paper, and she'll finish it as soon as she figures out what's going on with that strange sound coming from right next door. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, and Dan Zapula. So don't worry, I'm sure it's nothing. An easily explained sound. In fact, maybe it's just the wind. All night long. Jazz was heard in the city of New Orleans and true to his word. The Axeman took no victims that night. What do you believe, listeners? Was the famed Axeman actually multiple people taking advantage of a situation? Or was he the same man? Or, as his note implies, something else entirely? Leave your comments on our website and be sure to check out our next episode of... America's Murder Mysteries. Sweet dreams, listeners, and maybe put some jazz on before you sleep, just in case. I hit pause on my phone before the familiar podcast jingle signaled the end of the episode. Checking the playback history, I see I've gone through seven episodes without stopping, and my term paper is maybe halfway done. Ten pages down, another ten pages to go. My eyes hover over the computer screen and I contemplate continuing my torture when I notice the time, 11 p.m. I remember that dinner is a concept that exists and, well, that I have not had it yet. My roommates are usually the one to remind me, but they had early finals and already left for winter break. If I don't make myself dinner in this brief moment of clarity, it will never happen. 
I should probably set an alarm in the future. My knees scream when I unbend them and swing them over the side of the bed. Four hours sitting still does not agree with me. Cursing, I pull my lavender print comforter off the bed with me and hobble to the door. I can feel the cold of the wooden floor permeating my fuzzy socks as I walk, but my knees haven't recovered enough to go any faster than a newborn deer. When the landlord converted this house into apartments for college students, he either didn't think or didn't care to insulate the attic very well. It had been fine when school began, and I was honestly excited to have such a large room. Now, though, I'm just glad I haven't frozen to death, thanks to the space heater I keep by my bed. The stairs leading down to the second floor are winding, steep, and narrow, but four months of taking them has made me immune to their wicked ways. I flick the hall light on while heading to the main staircase. The old house creaks and moans in the wind, shuttering the windows as I walk by. With everyone gone, the house seems too big and too dark, and the snowstorm raging outside doesn't help. It's a little weird to me that the attic is the least scary place in this house right now. Halfway down the stairs to the first floor is when I hear it. A wail. I stop, one foot suspended in midair over the next step, and listen. The windows lining the hallway continue to creak against the onslaught outside, and the wind whistles as it carries itself over and around the house. Common sounds for a snowstorm, but nothing quite like what I just heard. I stand there for several minutes, but I don't hear the wailing again. Maybe it really was just the wind. My stomach grumbles, breaking me out of my trance and reminding me of the dinner I haven't had yet. Looking down the staircase, the hair on the back of my neck stands up when I see how dark the first floor is. I bolt down the stairs and slam my hand against the nearest light switch. The entryway light clicks on and I admire its warm glow before meticulously flicking on every other light in the house. My shoulders inch their way down from my ears and I finally make my way to the kitchen in search of canned soup. I'm watching my soup spin circles in the microwave when I hear the wail again, only louder this time. I can't tell if the sound has gotten closer or if being on the first floor has made it clearer. The direction is hard to make out with the wind howling outside, but if I had to guess, it sounds like the wailing came from next door. A bay window over the sink looks across the side yard into the neighbor's house. I lean over the sink on my tiptoes, straining to see anything through the curtain of snow. If their lights were on... I'm not sure that I could tell. The microwave beeps, but I'm too lost in my own internal debate to notice. Do I go next door to check on my neighbors? But what if it's just the wind or some animal and I wake them? It's almost midnight after all, and the storm outside does not look pleasant to walk through, even just across the yard. At the same time, my neighbors could be hurt and need help. Do I really want to be the neighbor who heard something wrong and then didn't do anything about it? And what if something is wrong when I do get there? What if someone's attacking them and and attacks me because I came to check? What if that attacker comes here? I stand frozen in the kitchen for what seems like hours, but is really three minutes according to the kitchen clock. Finally, I sigh and head for my coat. I'll just peek outside for a second. If everything looks fine, I'll board myself up and go to sleep in my secluded attic. If something looks wrong, I'll call the cops and then board myself up in the attic. Easy. With my coat zipped and my pajama pants tucked into my boots, I pull on the front door. At first try, the door won't budge and I lean back before hearing a large crack. The door swings open and ice falls to the doormat from where the door had been sealed shut. I instantly dread having to get the door back open once I return. 
I warily step onto the front porch, mindful of hidden ice slicks, and head in the direction of the neighbor's house. The wind makes my eyes water by the time I make it to my neighbor's driveway, and the bottoms of my pajama pants are wet from snow. It's only been a minute, but I feel like I'll never be warm again. Remembering my poorly insulated attic room I'll be returning to doesn't help the sentiment. From what I can tell, both of my neighbor's cars are in the front of the garage, meaning they're definitely home, or were home. No lights are on from what I can see, so I make my way to the front of the house. The front door is wide open. I'm so startled I skid to a stop and nearly slip on the sidewalk. The entryway is a black rectangular void in stark contrast with the icy storm. A small snowdrift is forming against the door, already four to five inches tall. Shaking, I pull my phone from my pocket and numbly dial 911. When I don't hear the familiar ringing of a connected call, I glance at the screen and notice the reception out here is completely lost. Shit. I stamp my feet to keep warm as I look between my house and the neighbor's front door. If I can connect back to my Wi-Fi, I can get a message out. I squint into the darkness of the house from ten feet away, trying to make sense of the shadows. My feet move on their own, and I find myself inching closer to the front door and the mysteries it contains. I know I should run home and contact the police, and I know I should keep myself safe in case of whoever or whatever's inside, but... I glance once more at my own house, lights pouring from every window like an inviting Christmas tree. I long to return to its comfort, yet when I turn back to the open door, I can feel a darkness of the house inviting me in. I have to see what happened. Just for a second. My phone's flashlight illuminates my way as I cross the steps to the front porch and into the foyer. I'm too afraid to call out in case I alert an intruder, and I hope my footsteps are muffled by the storm outside. To the right of the foyer is an empty dining room, and to the left is a living room. My neighbors must be avid hunters because the walls are covered with mounted animals of different kinds. The flashlight glints off their glass eyes as I move. I can't shake the feeling of being watched. I take a few more steps into the living room, shining my light across each creature. A moose head rests proudly over the fireplace, flanked on either side by a couple of white-tailed bucks. Over the couch are taxidermy ducks, hares, and what looks like a deer, but bigger. An elk, I think? My light pans across the room to the back of the house, catching on another set of glass eyes. The light doesn't quite reach that far into the room, leaving most of it still encased in shadow. I'm leaning forward and wondering which animal the bust could be when the eyes blink. I gasp, my hand flying to cover my mouth as I watch the eyes arc from the floor to my eye level. A high, eerie wail erupts from its location, ending in an uncomfortable screech. I stumble backward onto the hardwood, my phone clattering across the floor. Scrambling away from the creature, I palm the floor for my phone. Shaking, I manage to lift it again and see the outline of a large animal standing in the middle of the room. It has moved several feet closer in the dark and now stands regarding me splayed out on the floor. Long legs tipped with splayed hooves support a lean body and a thick, dark neck. A small brown head rests atop the neck, set with a wide nose and tiny eyes, reflecting yellow and green in the light. While its body does not appear any taller than me, the antlers rise high above us, almost reaching the ceiling. My phone's light casts shadows through them, like barren trees arching across the ceiling. This is an elk. A live elk. Here, in this living room. I struggle to stand up and back away towards the open door, keeping eye contact with the elk as I go. 
Shadow trees dance across the room as my phone shakes in my hand, appearing as if they too are caught in the blizzard outside. My breath comes in shallow pants and I will myself to appear more intimidating than I feel. The elk silently watches each step I take, making no move to follow. My boot taps the metal threshold of the entryway and I breathe a sigh of relief. I quickly glance behind me to ensure I don't trip, but hear a snort in front of me. As soon as I return eye contact with the elk, it blinks, then charges. I jump backwards out of the house and land precariously on the sidewalk. Careening my arms to keep my balance, I turn and sprint in the direction of my house, hoping the elk doesn't decide to gore me on its antlers. Just before reaching home, I spare a glance behind me. The elk is standing still as a statue on the sidewalk, watching me run. I slow to a jog, grateful to be out of immediate danger, but confused about what any of this could mean. I catch my breath on my front porch and fumble to get my ice-encased front door back open. A chorus of wails surrounds me. I stop, shivering from more than just the blizzard, looking out from my front porch. Dozens of dark shapes stand at the edge of my vision. Even without a proper light source, their eyes glow in oil-slick yellow. Within a second, I throw myself against the front door, falling to the floor as broken ice litters around me. Just as quickly, I stand and slam the door closed, turning every lock I can. Running to the back door, I do the same, checking that all the entrances to the house are secure before running to the second floor. I sit on the top step, watching the entryway, waiting for something to happen. The wind outside howls a mournful tune, accompanied by the groans of the old house. I sit silently for several minutes, my eyes never leaving the door. The entry light flickers, then goes out. One by one, every light in the house goes dark, leaving me on the stairwell in pitch blackness. I struggle to keep my breathing calm, trying to mask my location as well as I can. The doors hold steady, but I hear the tinkling of broken glass and the rustling of something below me. It doesn't seem to be in the kitchen or even in the living room. No. No, it's, it's deeper, more like the basement. My blood freezes. I never locked the basement door, didn't even think of it as a possible entryway from the outside. It must have forced its way through one of the tiny storm windows. When I picture the beast contorting its body to fit through, I shudder. The thing in the basement makes a good deal of noise as it shuffles around, knocking over long-forgotten paint cans and boxes of junk. I can't tell if I have enough time to run and lock the basement door, and the indecision keeps me rooted to my spot on the stairs. When a long shriek erupts from downstairs, I realize the thing has made its way to the first floor. I creep up the stairs to the attic as fast as I can manage without making a sound. The old floorboards creak as I walk, but I pray that the beast downstairs cannot hear me through the noise of the storm. Luckily, I don't trip on my way up the winding steps in the dark. My closed bedroom door greets me at the very top, and I take a moment to recall if I was the one who closed it. I don't remember. The clicking of hooves moves from the foyer to the main staircase, making my heart race faster the closer they come. I weigh the risks and gamble on my bedroom being safer than the danger I can hear downstairs. I slowly turn the knob and open the door sliver. Peeking inside, I see my bedroom as I left it, albeit dark. With one ear trained on the second floor, I swing the door open and glance around. The room is empty. I sigh in relief and quickly shut the door behind me, turning the handle so the latch doesn't audibly click when it closes. Adrenaline makes my head pound, muddling my thoughts. I sit on my bed, running my hands through my snow-sodden hair and staring at the door. 
It occurs to me that the door is unlocked, and I scurry as fast as I can to throw the lock, then dash back to bed. I'm shivering, but I can't tell if it's nerves or the frigid temperature of my room. The faintest glow of the moon shines through the snow, lighting my room a gray barely distinguishable from the shadows. Downstairs is silent, but I don't know if it's because the animal has left or because the hallway rug muffled the footsteps. I pull my comforter around me and wait. The wind whistles against the windows behind me, and I can't help but think it's the herd of elk outside singing their haunting chorus. Five minutes pass, and every shifting moan of the old house makes me jump. Another ten, and I think I'm safe up here in the attic. The stairs creak. I want to scream as the telltale sound of hooves clacking on wood makes its way to my bedroom door. The creature stops at the top step and pauses for the longest minute of my life. I can hear it huff, then sniff under the doorframe. Nothing happens for a while, and it slowly dawns on me that the creature hasn't found a way to get in. I almost laugh. Hooves. The creature has hooves, and it can't open a door. I'm still reluctant to leave the far side of the room, but I begin to relax at this revelation. I'm safe up here after all. I just need to wait for the creature to get bored and leave, and everything will be all right. It is strange, though, how the creature made it this far into the house. It broke a window getting into the basement, but how did it open the door leading out? I may have forgotten to lock it, but I was sure the door was closed. Maybe I was wrong. Otherwise, the elk would be able to. The doorknob turns and my blood freezes. First left, then right. Slow and deliberate, then violent rattling. The only thing standing between me and the creature is a shabby lock in five feet of bedroom floor. In a blind panic, I duck underneath my bed, covering my mouth so my harsh breathing doesn't alert the creature to my presence any more than it already suspects. The doorknob halts and the attic falls silent. Something drags across the door to the floor and I see them in the dark. Five charcoal-dipped fingers slip under the doorframe, wriggling to find purchase. The nails are cracked and stained dark with mud, leaving traces of black as they wiggle and claw the underside of my door. Each scrape makes my hair stand on end and I clench my teeth so hard I hear them creak. One long screech echoes behind the door and the fingers disappear. The stair creaks and I hear a clacking of hooves descend to the second floor once more. I don't know if the creature has left my house and I wouldn't be able to hear it from the attic if it did. The chances of me leaving my bedroom to check are slim to none, and I recess further under my bed. Over time, the storm calms and the night ends on a silent note. I can't sleep for a single second of it. Dawn breaks blindingly over a snow-covered landscape, illuminating my bedroom like a house on fire. The light doesn't reach me where I'm at, far underneath my bed. Even with the arrival of the new day, I can't muster the courage to leave my hiding place. Hours pass and my stomach rumbles. I numbly remember my dinner left abandoned in the microwave downstairs. It's not until my joints hurt too much to remain on the hard wooden floor any longer that I contemplate coming out. My arms and legs are frozen stiff and it takes several minutes just to unbend them. I drag my body from under my bed and look around my room. My eyes are sore from the hours spent staring at the door and the midday sun doesn't help. Right now, however, I avoid looking at my door. I know I need to leave at some point, but I can't stop imagining a set of eyes watching me from the empty rooms of my house. Instead, I procrastinate by checking my phone for the time. Noon. I sigh, dreading my inevitable trip downstairs. 
My hand hovers over the lock on the door when it clicks. My phone. The Wi-Fi. My neighbors. And when I hit myself when I realized I'd forgotten about them. I was so cold and scared it never occurred to me to try contacting the police again. The cell signal is still out, so I enabled Wi-Fi calling and dialed the number. I've never called the police before, and it takes longer than I would have thought before I'm connected to an operator. Ironically, my exhaustion saves me, because I sound calmer than I feel as I explain last night's events. The operator assures me they will send a car to the neighbor's house right away and then check on me afterwards. I hang up and stare at my phone screen. My door hovers at the edge of my vision, almost audible in its desire to be acknowledged, so I turn around and open a Google search for elk on the East Coast. The first result is a summary from a Wikipedia page. Elk were widespread across the continent, with the territory for eastern elk extending from the eastern coastline to the Mississippi River. I scroll a little further and read a second article. While eastern elk used to populate the northeastern United States and Canada, hunting severely diminished their numbers. The eastern elk went extinct when the last one was shot in 1877. The last elk in the area disappeared almost 150 years ago. So, what did I see last night? Slowly, I face my door and turn the lock. It swings into my room with a creak and I step back. A trail of muddy human footprints winds up the stairs and stops at my door. A trail of muddy human footprints winds up the stairs and stops at my door. I'll bet you've seen them, there, by the side of the road. Some flowers, maybe a cross, maybe some old burned-out candles. I'm speaking of those roadside memorials that grieving loved ones put up after losing someone in a tragic accident. But as we learn in this tale from author Michael Fallon, some people find those memorials annoying and upsetting. Some people might even want them gone entirely. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Mary Murphy, and Matthew Bradford. So please, have some respect. Ignore the memorials if you don't like them. Just leave them alone and recognize that they serve as a tribute. You'd say I should take a different route. I do. I would, all the time. But be reasonable. It took me literally 20 minutes out of my way. I can't be 20 minutes late for work every day. And what about what I'm in a hurry, or just not thinking? And all of a sudden, there it is. Again. Again and again and again. I can't let this one thing upend my whole life. You might say, what's wrong with marking the spot where this terrible thing occurred? A young life taken so soon and so brutally and so on. Of course, at first, but come on. Tragic things happen every minute of the day. Do we need a reminder? We're always being reminded. Or 
Okay, maybe it's supposed to be like that movie with the billboards, pointing out that nobody's been charged for it. But give it up already. Move on. It's been two years and there isn't a single suspect. The trail is ice cold. I swear, you'd think I was guilty with the dreams I've been having. I mean, Jesus, not dreams, nightmares. I'm driving on a dark road, going really fast. I know I'm going too fast, but I can't slow down. And then my headlights explode on this girl in the road. I mean, right in the middle of the street, for God's sake. A teenage girl on a skateboard. And her face is blank, staring, staring at me. She doesn't scream or react at all, except maybe with this look of resignation. And she glides toward me, her arms out like wings. Blah, 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 then I wake up. Probably everybody in town has had that dream. Her name was Elise Paulinger, 16. My son Boyd was in the same class as she was, but he didn't really know her. I think maybe she was one of those goth kids. Probably always wearing black, so there's that. He said they might say hi to each other, but that's about it. He's a good kid. Treats people well, you know. Wouldn't ostracize. He's at the state college, about an hour and a half from here. Close, but far enough that he can feel some independence. He comes home some weekends, but less often now. I miss him. My boy. Just me and Tess now. Empty nesters. At our age. Anyway. Elise. Coming home from her shift at the wing shack in Placido. Around midnight, she disappears. Somewhere in those three and a half blocks between work and home. Just vanishes. Leaves work, never arrives home. But then some local genius figured it out. Her path had taken her by way of an overpass that bridged the 18-mile, the one on Dominion. She could have gone over the side into the water. Bingo. They found her skateboard in the bushes nearby. Then her body a half-mile downstream. Apparently she was an awful mess. Just broken apart. Horrible. They told the family not to look though Mr. Pollinger had to do the ID. Closed casket, obviously. Clearly she'd been hit, on the bridge, by some drunk, more than likely, going hella fast. Isn't that what the kids say? Had to be going hella fast, based on the trauma to her body. Snapped spine, caved-in skull. I mean, really speeding. Not to mention there weren't any skid marks on the bridge. Didn't even slow down. And ever since, on a guardrail at the side of the overpass, there's been a tribute, a memorial. The kind of thing people pile up when somebody is killed tragically on the road, especially when it's a kid. Flowers and wreaths, cardboard signs. We'll miss you, Elise, with hearts and crying emojis. Crosses and plaster angels and Virgin Marys. Melancholy candles flickering on warm, still nights. The rest of the time, melted and wet, Bouquets littering the ground, then new ones when they get tattered and threadbare from the wind, and the rain, and the snow when winter comes, and then there's a little Christmas tree and a string of battery-powered lights wrapped around the rail, which glow for a day and a half and then die. But they're still there, two years later. And in pride of place, a framed photograph from when she was, like, 14, a school picture, same kind as my boy's. Oh, and don't let me forget, a teddy bear. Of course, fastened to the guardrail. Arms akimbo, glassy eyes. Well, they are glass. Two years it's been there. Sodden, fur patchy, her teddy bear, we can assume. 
It's enough to break your heart. And it does, believe me. Every damn time. Every time I go past it, I can't help but look and... There's this feeling in my chest. I don't know how to describe it. I guess it's grief. But I can't be drowned in grief every day at 7.30 and 5 p.m. I'm sorry, it's a drag. And there's no escaping it. Not really. The anniversary rolls around, like it did a couple weeks ago. And once again, everybody starts replenishing it. And everywhere you look online, there are pictures of it. And of her, smiling, looking happy. You'd think this kid was never in a bad mood. Sad posts proclaiming, We will never forget. No kidding. I don't know when that feeling turned to anger. It had been building for a while without my realizing it. And then I just blew. It was raining. It was late. I'd stopped at the steakhouse for a couple drinks. TGIF. Then once again I wasn't thinking and drove over the overpass and there it was. I slowed down. You could barely see through the window glass with the rain coursing down it. The flowers were wet and drooping, blown across the road. Leaves and petals sticking to the soaked pavement. Damp candles. That sad, impassive teddy bear tipping back and forth in the wind. Jesus, what a sight. What a sad sight. I hit the gas, and a couple minutes later I was ducking my head and jogging into the Super Duper, where I bought some impatience in a plastic pot. Impatience, that's a kind of flower. Red and pink. These ones were, anyway. Back at the overpass, I got out of the car to add them to the wilted memorial. The river was high and black, and rushing like I'd never seen or heard it before. But how often am I standing on a bridge at night in a rainstorm? I was about to put down the pot when I glanced at the teddy bear, and all of a sudden, it came over me. Out of nowhere, it was this rage. I heaved back and threw the flower pot into the river. I started ripping up the other flowers, the wreaths, tore the light string off the railing, threw everything over the side. Then I yanked the teddy bear free and flung it as far as I could into the darkness. I didn't see it hit the water. But a second later, it came drifting toward me, floating face up. It slipped out of sight under the pass. I jumped in the car and tore off. I was really keyed up. To tell you the truth, I was elated, thrilled. I didn't realize what a burden that thing had been. I was finally free of the goddamn thing. And yes, they could build another one, but it wouldn't be the same one. The same one that has plagued me. That one is gone forever. I had to tell Tess. I had to share this with her. I couldn't stop myself. You might say she didn't share my enthusiasm. Why? Why, Doug? Why, why, why? I was sick of it, that's why. How long do we have to have it in our faces? It's morbid, self-indulgent, accusatory. They'll only put it back up. She was unglued walking tensely through the house, back and forth, from room to room like an automaton, with me following on her heels. I know that. I just needed to. A purge, an expiation. She stopped suddenly in the kitchen and rounded on me. Expiation? For whose sins are you atoning? It was a catharsis. Whatever, I don't know. But it felt good. It felt right. Somebody had to do it. No, Doug. Nobody had to do it. Just you. Nobody else is ripping up memorials to dead girls. And what if somebody saw you? What might they think? Nobody saw me. How can you know that? 
I don't care. I told you, I don't care. You don't care. Well, that's all that matters then. She turned her back to me, shaking her head. I touched her shoulder, but she jerked it away. I'm sorry. She stood there, breathing hard. Finally, she turned back to me. You're sorry. I am. I lost it. She crossed to the refrigerator, opened the door, crouched and started moving things, reaching into the back. She pulled out an open bottle of white wine. I sighed disapprovingly. Where did that come from? She ignored me, took down a tumbler, filled it halfway. Honey. Don't. She lifted a finger in my direction and sat down at the kitchen table. Do you think that's a good... She shot me a venomous look. It's white wine. I put my hands up, placating. She sat with her fingers wrapped around the glass. She didn't lift it. I sighed, tucked my hands in my pockets, and lowered my head. Believe it or not, I actually bought a flower pot for the damn thing. It was so tattered and shabby. I was trying to help. Yeah, well, you didn't do a very good job of that, did you? I shook my head, took a long breath. I'm sorry. It's over. It's out of my system, okay? And then the phone rang. Neither one of us moved. Then Tess sprung up. I shook my head. Not now. But she looked at the caller ID and grabbed the phone, putting on a smile. Hi, honey. The bright look on her face went dark. I froze. Boyd? She put both hands on the phone, her eyes wide and fearful. I could hear the sound of my son's voice coming from the receiver. He was clearly distraught. Boyd, calm down. I stepped toward her, reaching for the phone, but she put up her hand and turned away. My mouth tightened and my hands closed into fists. I was this close to the edge. Please, honey, you're starting to scare me. Her eyes welled and she put her hand over her mouth. I took another step toward her and suddenly she held out the phone to me. He wants you. Hey, buddy. At first, all I could make out was fumbling, and then garbled syllables coming between gasps for air. I don't... Boyd, talk to me. I could hear him trying to speak, trying not to cry. Dad? Yes, I'm here. What's going on, bud? Is something wrong? No. No. I mean, I'd say I'm okay, but... Good, good, that's good. I nodded at Tess, and she unwound a little. He was hyperventilating, trying to get the words out, but barely intelligible. It must be someone's idea of a joke. A sick joke. What? I'm sorry, I didn't get that. A uh, joke? Tell me what's going on. You know those, um, when someone dies, or is killed crossing the street and... Fear washed over me in a wave. Tess saw my face, and immediately looked stricken. I tried to sound calm. Uh-huh, sure. You're in a car crash. Yes, yes, I know. They put up these memorials at where it happened? Flowers and... Yes, a uh, tribute or whatever. I know what they are. Why? Someone put one up for me. What? They, they put up, what do you call it, a tribute. The flowers and a sign saying R.I.P. Boyd will miss you. And my high school picture. Where did they even get that? Who is they, Boyd? You keep saying... I don't know, but you know what the weirdest thing is? I shook my head. I was feeling dizzy. Tess was frantically pulling on her overcoat. My teddy bear. 
Hold on, what? I recognize it, Dad. It's the old one-eyed teddy bear from when I was a kid. It's got the one button eye and stitches along the side where, where Mom fixed it. Now, Boyd, you just described probably every teddy bear in existence. No, Dad. It's mine. Tess grabbed up her purse and headed for the door. I'm going there. Tell him I'll be there in an hour. She flew out the door. I gaped after her. Boyd's voice snapped me out of it. Who would go through all that trouble? Your friends? Pranking you in bad taste? I don't have any friends. No, that's not true. Not here. Halloween is coming up. Maybe it's a Halloween prank. No. Listen, your mother just left. She's coming to see you. What? Why? Jesus. I knew I should have gone further away. Now, now, don't say that. How is she? She's fine. She's fine. But why is she coming here? I thought you said it was just a prank. I'm sure it is. You know your mother. He was breathing hard. I tried to talk him down. Take it easy, son. Let's think about this. Can you send me a picture? Of me? No. I, I mean, yes, but firstly of the... Oh, no. No, no way. I'm not going near that thing. Okay, I understand. That makes sense. Where is it? Down in front of the dorm entrance. I can see it from here. You can see it? From my balcony. I could try to take a picture from up here, but it's probably too far away. Don't worry about that. Be careful. Be careful of what? Stay away from the edge. Why? I don't know. Just humor me, okay? I'm not going to fall off the balcony. I know that. Just go inside. Who would do that? Who would go through all that trouble for me? He sounded different all of a sudden. Distant. Almost contemplative. Like all the fight had gone out of him. Jerks, that's who. Listen, Boyd, will you please go inside? It's dark in here. Somebody turned off the lights. My hand holding the phone shook. Just now? Yeah, I'm pretty sure I left them on. Pete. Hey, Pete. Who's Pete? Your roommate? Yeah, but it's not Pete. A tremor went through me. I squeezed the phone hard. Who is it? I don't know. It's too dark. I can't see. Wait. Oh, hi. Who is it? It's a girl. That took me by surprise. I decompressed a bit. From the dorm? I kind of recognize her, but I don't remember her name. I couldn't say why, but my stomach dropped. Could you put her on? No. Why not? I was exasperated, nearing the end of my rope. She can't talk. Why can't she? She doesn't have a jaw. I opened my mouth to speak, but nothing came out. But she is smiling. She's smiling at me. All right, all right, stop this, enough. What are you talking about? She's dead, Dad. I'm pretty sure she's dead. All right, I thought. Is he fucking with me? A hope lit up in me that maybe this whole thing was a joke. On me. I'll be right off. We're going down to the Tribute. Ah, uh, okay. Maybe you can take that picture. I don't think so. Listen to me, Boyd. Your mother will be there soon, okay? Just sit tight. I have to go. That's when my mind started to unhinge. I became frantic. No, 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 Boyd. Listen to me. Don't go anywhere. I'm sorry, Dad. I was unsteady, gripping the kitchen counter, imploring him. No, Boyd! Please! Please! Goodbye. No! Boyd! Stop! Stop! No! No! Oh, no!
Boyd! Answer me, Boyd! Boyd! No! I went on wailing and pleading, but I too was falling through darkness. At night, the throughway is empty and endless, like a rolling treadmill going on and on and on. I'm in a hurry, but I don't want to get where I'm going. I should have grabbed a little something for the road. I know what I'll find. I know it's all over. I knew it the second the phone rang. Earlier, really. A lot earlier than that. Oh, mercy. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven. <laughs> I never ask for mercy and seek no one's sympathy. <sighs> He's calling again. This is a fourth time. I don't want to hear from him. I don't want to listen to what he has to say. Ah, well. Que sera, sera. I can't talk. I'm not there yet. I'll call you when... Hey, guess what? He sounds off. Eerily dreamy. Maybe even stoned. I am not forbearing. I answer brusquely. What? There's one for me now. I know what he means, I suppose. But resist, anyway. One what? You know one what. On the big oak in front of the house. Flowers and ribbons. The whole shit and shinola. It's really very nice. The kind of thing I would have liked. Oh, shut up. Why did you start this? Why did you have to fuck with that curls? Me? Me? <laughs> you have to be kidding. You're blaming me. I am poleaxed. Just leave it alone. Why couldn't you just leave it alone? Oh, no. It was disturbing your morning commute. At least I didn't kill a child. I can't really argue with that. I pull out the pack of menthol cigarettes hidden under the seat. Pop one into my mouth. At this point, why the fuck not? What? Nothing. Are you smoking? Are you fucking kidding me? You helped. How dare you? You helped me. You took the car to the wash. You drove two towns away to get it fixed. You didn't tell. Everything was okay, Duck. Was it? It was. It was fine. It was behind us. I made peace with it. You did. Well, peace is the last thing I made with it. I can't help that. Me, I made a terrible mistake. One I didn't even remember making. Because you were drunk. Because you were in a blackout. You sound like you've had a few yourself. I'm not driving a car. I'm standing outside where I'm not going to hurt anybody. And where there's a memorial to my death on the front lawn. I don't want to keep going. I don't want to go back. I look for the next exit. I'm turning around. Aren't you going to pick up Boyd? I'll be back in less than 30 minutes. Go inside and wait for me. I have to go anyway. Go where? She's here. Who? The girl. She's taking me. Maybe I'll get to see Boyd. What? What girl? Oh, Tess. You know. The call cuts off. 
I immediately hit call back, and it rings and rings, and then rolls over. I hit redial. The same thing. I hit it again. As I pull in front of our house, the headlights sweep the front lawn. No sign of Doug. I exhale, not quite with relief, but a little hope. Maybe he's inside, sleeping it off. Sleeping off all of this. I get out and approach the tree. The nearby street lamp lights its furnace orange. There are flower pots and candles around it. Cards and banners on the trunk. A poster board reading R.I.P. Doug's high school photo pounded into the bark with a nail through the glass. Above me, the tree hushes and rustles in the wind. I look up to the black canopy where the streetlight can't reach. The branches tremble and whisper. Among them is a shape, hanging from a sturdy branch, from a string of Christmas lights. It's a man I know, even though his face is darkened and his eyes are bugged out and his tongue is poking from his open mouth. He creaks slightly from side to side. I go inside to await the call from Boyd's College. Until then, who knows? For now, he's Schrodinger's kid. That was two hours ago. The school called, but I didn't pick up. Nobody's discovered Doug yet. The wind howls and batters the windows. It's the middle of the night, but I got a delivery. I could see it through the spy hole. It's a beautiful wreath. A large, dense oval of multicolored flowers in a banner saying, Rest in peace. No acronyms for me. And at the center, my picture. I'm pretty sure it's my high school photo, indeed. I am sitting in the front room. All the lights are out. Through a gap in the curtain, I can see the arrangement and the delivery girl behind it but only barely. Every minute or so, she reaches a blackened bony hand out and rings a doorbell. Then a few seconds later, she knocks. It's actually a pretty nice arrangement, but that bitch can knock all she wants. I'm not answering the door. final tale, we present a scenario which the past year and a half has shown us can induce intense tension and horror. Yes, I'm talking about the dreaded Zoom call. I'm sure we've all had to be a part of at least one recently. And if you're a teacher trying to work with students via Zoom, you know the nightmares all too well. But in this tale, shared with us by author Marcus Demanda, We meet one teacher, disturbed by more than just technology and smart-ass students. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Nicole Doolin, Jessica McAvoy, and Ellie Hirschman. So teach your children well. 
The best lesson they can learn is how to be safe, be good. I think that's it. Class goes until 1018, so technically we've still got five minutes, but I'm going to give those five to anyone who wants to hang back after I speak the magic words. If you need me to go over anything, point out any missing assignments, just stay in the call. I say this to 11 silent faces staring back at me on screen, and to the 13 black rectangles under them. One of the rectangles, with a face in it, A girl, Lydia, with flaming red hair and a perpetually smiling disposition, lights up yellow around the edges. But she doesn't say anything. Lately, almost no one does. All right, we'll do this again Thursday, day after tomorrow, same bat time, same bat station. Until then, my young internet urchins. Smiles from half the kids on screen. Some are already waving goodbye. A few click off prematurely. Most of them mouth the next words back to me, even as I say them. Be safe. Be good. Goodbye, first period. I sit back in my chair and wave at them in return. Screens blink out one after another. There was a time not so long ago, before the return to school plan got postponed, again, when some of those kids would have hung around. Most would have had some pretense asking me to look up their missing work or re-explain what alliteration was, to help them track down which module had their missing Julius Caesar interview assignment, whatever. But the thing they really wanted to do was talk. They were lonely. Not now. Ever since the latest mutation, no one goes anywhere anymore. No one sees anyone outside of their own house. Among the students of Battlefield Secondary School, 33% of those households have fewer people in them than they'd had during the first lockdown. We're back at square one, as though March of last year had never ended, and it's only gotten worse. Death everywhere, and the kids are used to it. So, no one says anything when I speak my traditional farewell. The screens just blink out and disappear. Even the ones with smiling faces in them. Even Lydia. I'm staring only at myself. I put my face in my hands and thank God I still have 24 kids in first period. Second had dropped from 28 to 25. Fifth period had dropped from 25 to 19. And sixth had gone from 30 to 21. It wasn't supposed to get the kids. 16-year-olds were supposed to be safe. A digitized chirp from the computer. A new Zoom alert. I look up even as the speakers translate the message into words, digitized and dead. Michael Alvarado has entered the waiting room. Weird. Michael is one of my sixth period 21. I won't see them until tomorrow afternoon. (laughs) And I won't see Michael at all. He's one of my dark screens. Never saying anything. Never turning in anything. He's one of those kids who logs in and, in the real world, walks away to do something else. He's a ghost in the Zoom call. One of many who's simply given up. And now he's trying to check in. After class in the morning session and on the wrong day. (laughs) It's the second fucking semester. You'd think the kids would have learned their schedules by now. But I click admit anyway. 
Maybe he'll turn his camera on. Maybe he wants help. But still, the timing sucks. I just spent an hour and a half talking to the screen in my laptop without anyone talking back. I need a cigarette. I adopt a welcoming and hopeful tone in spite of his truancy. Michael, Mike, buddy, what brings you here now? Class is tomorrow. Did you want me to help you catch up? The darkened rectangle that contains only his name blinks yellow around the edges, but he doesn't speak. No background noise either. His mic icon shows he's got his audio on, but still, nothing. Michael, you there? On the tabletop, which doubles as my classroom and dinner table, my phone lights up, vibrating over wood. Shit. I pick it up and check the ID. Gabrielle, my sister. Then I remembered, I'm still in the Zoom call. Smooth move, teach. Oh, Michael. Ah, Sorry about that. The phone caught me off guard. I am instantly furious with myself. Teachers can get a letter in the file real quick for saying anything inappropriate over a Zoom call. And all of the sessions are recorded. Now I turned my damn phone off. I'll call you later, big sis. I promise her, in my mind. And I'll have to. She's been living an even more cloistered existence than I have lately. Older than me by four years and battling down the early stages of emphysema. And if that isn't enough to talk me into quitting smoking, nothing ever will be. Gabrielle doesn't even go outside to walk. She has her groceries delivered. She knows that if she catches this shit, this airborne plague, she's as dead as her husband. She's alone. And yet, I've let the messages pile up over the past few days. She'll need two hours out of me, at minimum. And I just, I don't have any time for anything. Every time I think I can catch a breath of my own, ah... Michael doesn't answer me, but a line of text appears next to his name in the chat. My text-to-speech program recognizes his student profile as male, and an electronic approximation of a young man's voice crackles through the laptop speaker. I'm sorry, Mr. Cussman. I smile into the screen, hoping he can see. (laughs) Here we are, both apologizing to each other. Tell you what, how about I make up for my mistake by helping you come back from yours, huh? Can you, uh, turn your camera on? It's okay if you really can't. We can still come up with a- I can't turn my camera on. I can't do anything. Guilt settles over me like a warm, unwanted blanket. I may be 50 years old, but yeah, I still remember that feeling of academic hopelessness well enough. That despair that settles in when you've let the work pile up on you until it's too big to even see around. Or maybe it's more than that. Impossible to tell. I haven't gotten to know this kid. He hasn't given me a chance. But I brush that thought off. Look, no excuses. I'm the adult here. Michael, listen. I can help. I can't come back. I shake my head in confusion. A growing unease prickles my flesh as I try to make sense of what he just said. I was talking about coming back from under a mountain of makeup work. But my lifeless text-to-speech program simply could not convey whether Michael was talking about schoolwork or coming back to school, period. Oh, was he sick? Goodbye, Mr. Cussman. Michael, wait! (sighs) But he doesn't. He's gone. And I'm left to wonder if I should email his guidance counselor. 
We still have three of those at Battlefield, which makes for a 75% chance that his original one is still alive. All I have to do is click into Michael's student profile and SMS and... I fold the laptop closed. Darkness settles in, fucking swallows me whole, because I usually don't have the interior lights on when I'm working and the blinds are shut. The gloom is broken only by the spark of my Zippo, fire, and then smoke. Relief? Tears? I don't even know why I'm crying exactly. I should follow up on this kid. I should call my sister. Maybe I should check on mom too. I should do the laundry, wash the dishes, clean the toilet and the bathtub, air this place out before I get my ass evicted as a health hazard. That thought is almost funny. Almost. I've gotten calls. (sighs) I flatten my palms on the table, force myself to stand. It's difficult. All I ever do these days is sit. My legs want to retire, just like the rest of me. But I force them to do the work. I limp off to the bedroom, kicking beer cans out of my way as I go. I should grade some papers, answer those parent emails. So much to do. I'll never get on top of it. It's 10.30. I've got two hours until my next Zoom call. I wipe my cheeks dry, press the cherry of my cigarette into the top of my nightstand, which must look like the pockmarked surface of the moon by now. I lay myself down on the bed, confirm I read the time right. I curl up, close my eyes. There's a body in the bed with me. It has its back turned to me. It's facing the other way. It's wearing nothing but a pair of my own boxers. I reach over, not particularly afraid, and take it by the shoulder. Its flesh is tight, the muscles beneath, rigid. I know it's dead. This should bother me. There's a corpse in my bed, and I just crawled in with it. I think of good old Edgar Allan Poe. And so... All the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea. I pull it over, flat on its back, and it's me. My mouth is stretched wide, my eyes filmed over and fake-looking, like painted over paper mache. I'm dead. Well, fuck. Who knew? But then the phone in my pocket vibrates, and I wake up again. How the hell did it get in there? I can't actually remember putting the phone in my pocket, but there it is. And I'm fully dressed, and there's no one. Least of all my own self as a corpse in the bed with me. I sit up and draw my phone back out. Gabrielle, again. I swipe the call button from red to green. I'll start with an apology. Been making a lot of those lately. But I'm stopped cold by the sound on the other end. No, wait. Not sound. Sounds. Machines. Familiar audio cues from memories I can't quite pry open through the lingering fog of my mid-morning nap. Not computer sounds, but close. Definitely electronic beeps, mechanical suction. Breathing. Wheezes, muted and distorted as though through a tube. I run a hand through my hair, feeling the fear not so much creep up on me as charge me, 
causing my breath to come up short. Gabrielle? Hey, sis, I'm here. Gabrielle? Talk to me. Where are you? But it's obvious. She's in a hospital. And if I'm right, if my sister really is there, she's surrounded by it. The plague is everywhere around her. It'll be leaning over her in the form of every other doctor or nurse who checks in on her. And on the other patients, too. No one has individual rooms anymore. They're lined up in the halls, sliding in on stretchers that might as well have been gurneys, tucked into the corners of gift shops and cafeterias, waiting for treatment that hardly ever comes anymore. And when it does come, the ones who get it first are the ones they might actually be able to save. Younger patients, healthier ones, not my sister. Gabrielle, fucking talk to me. Nothing, only breathing, only wheezing, muted through the respirator. Then, silence. The phone light goes out. Oh, and in that moment, I know I've blown it again. I missed it. She hadn't called to talk to me. She'd called to listen. Instead, I'd screamed at her. Back and forth on the edge of the bed I rock, sitting up and holding myself, wondering where in the hell the rest of planet Earth even is, what everyone is doing. Are we all in this together, the way we said at the beginning? Is everyone living the same hell I am? Eventually, I settle down enough to call a hospital back. I figure it has to be Centara, which is not only the closest, but also the current officially designated dumping ground for plague victims. The last stop, people call it. I still have the main number on speed dial from when mom had her cancer surgeries two years ago. Mom's in remission now. And Gabrielle tried to call her first. The phone rings and rings and rings. But of course it does. Centara won't have enough staff to deal with their patient load, much less incoming calls, which they're probably getting by the hundred. I stay on the line, counting the rings. Twenty. Twenty-one. Twenty-two. If no one picks up, I'll fucking drive there. It's out of my assigned circuit, which includes my apartment complex, three streets I'm allowed to walk for exercise, two 6 a.m. visits to the food lion per week, and two trips to the school building per month, but I'll chance it anyway. The quarantine cops will make an exception for a guy whose sister is in the hospital, won't they? No, not until the hospital texts me a visitor code. You'll be busted before you ever get there, I tell myself. And even if you don't get busted on the way, they'll get you at the entrance. And that would mean my job. Can't lose that. 43, 44. Staring down at the phone, I note the time. 1220. God damn, fifth period. Kids will be in the waiting room already. Call me back, sis. I beg her in my mind. I'll do better this time. I promise. I set the phone in the charger, flip open the laptop, and power on. It takes a good five minutes to fully boot up, so I have time to double check that everything in camera view is fit to be seen by the kids. <sighs> The perpetual gloom of my apartment doesn't really come across on screen. Not that it matters much. I'm not the only one who does this. Half the kids come to class in the dark, too. I wave away the smoke, 
sit down. The app icons are still appearing one at a time on the desktop when I open my phone messages. The oldest one goes back to Sunday. Maddie, it's Gabrielle. Oh, Jesus. She doesn't sound good. I can almost hear her lungs straining in her chest, a rattling wind that somehow manages words. Call me, okay? I'm... I feel like... Shit, Maddie. Just started yesterday. No fever. No shakes. Not sure what to... do. Hope you're... alright, little bro. Taking your meds. Getting out. Call me, Maddie. I click on Google Chrome. The Teams app pops up automatically. I'll need another minute or two before even trying Zoom. No, Gabrielle. I haven't been taking my meds. I'm not all right. I'm just getting through. I tap her second message open. It's from yesterday. Maddie. (laughs) I think... I think I've got it, Maddie. I don't know how. I haven't... I haven't gone... I haven't gone anywhere. (sighs) A tapping accompanies her voice, like her hands shaking while she's holding the phone, like it's clicking against the surface of whatever she's holding it on. Where are you? dead or what? (laughs) Take your (laughs) medicine. (sighs) Fucking call me. My meds. I should be taking them. I've been on them since I was a kid. They help me think straight. Focus. Not be crazy. People who don't take their meds can get sick. I open my canvas page, click the Zoom link, activate the audio, maximize the screen. And there I am, clean-shaven and respectable. Hair's not too mussed up from the nap. Presentable. Six kids in the waiting room, five minutes before the start of class. I tap the second-to-last phone message, also from yesterday, but the timestamp shows it would have been long after I'd gone to bed. An engine in the background. Gabrielle gasping out muffled words as though speaking from the inside of a plastic bubble. Call 911. They came. 
taking me this Maddie. I can message the waiting room. Tell the kids there's a, there's a family emergency. No one will question it. I haven't taken off a day the whole year so far. I'm due. And there really is a family emergency, you asshole. You wouldn't be making it up. But hypothetically, if I do duck out of class, what would I do then? I'd sit here. I'd wait for her to call again. I'd lose my goddamned mind. Hell, maybe I've lost it already. But the man on the screen, the identity that passes to the world as me, well, he looks fine. He always looks fine. I click the waiting room open. There are 10 kids in there. More will pop in on the regular for the next 10 or 15 minutes until the whole class is there. I stare at the list, incredulous. (sighs) Then I put my hand over my mouth. There's Corey, Andrea, Susan, Lacey, Antoine, But one name, Sadie, she, she can't be here. She can't. She's dead. Fucking plague took her eight weeks ago. One of the first we lost. My fifth period had been a crying, shell-shocked mess. And I'd played responsible, grieving grown-up who sets the example for two whole class periods. She's dead. Is this someone's idea of a joke or what? I click to admit her. Only her. Whoever's doing this, they're going to find out what happens to the sick little bastards who think they're being goddamn funny when... (sighs) But that's her image, too, staring back at me on screen. Her her hazel eyes, her bob cut, black hair, her wire-rimmed glasses. Her skin is sallow. Still sickly, but definitely not dead. She gives me that tired smile that I recognize. This can't be happening. But it is. I I even recognize her shirt. Also black. A a panic at the disco concert tee. She'd been wearing it the last time she attended class. The memory is as clear as it could be. I remember how she said, I'm going to try to do this today, Mr. Cussman. I don't know if I'll make it all the way through class. I don't feel very good. I blink at the computer, flabbergasted. She said that, that exact thing, and now she's saying it again. The Zoom calls are all recorded. This can still be a prank, just just a sick joke. But who would do such a thing? I look again, and she's wearing a red blouse, and her skin isn't sallow anymore, and she smiles, a bit pink in the cheeks. I'm Sadie Covington. Can you hear me, Mr. Cussman? That... That's first day of school, Sadie. Probably the only time I'd ever seen her in such nice clothes, as if it had been picture day. And before I can think myself out of it, I say to her, I can hear you, Sadie. Another cut in the feed. Another instant resolution of old video. And there's pajama-clad Sadie, just as I remember her from Battlefield's virtual casual day. An occasion is now unofficially celebrated every day by most of the kids. It was only for a second, a digital flash of memory that only lasts long enough for her to say the word. Then she's zooming from under a blanket tent, talking into her phone. Safe. Cut back to pajama Sadie. Sick Sadie. Good. (sighs) 
put my hand over my mouth, staring wide-eyed at the screen. First day of school, Sadie. Mr. Cussman. Oh, I shake my head in cold terror, in flat denial. Blank screen. Be safe, be good, Mr. Cussman. Then it settles back on the day she'd come to class sick, right before she went into the hospital, the day she wore her panic at the disco tea. She's staring at the screen but not speaking. This must have been cut from when I'd been talking to the whole class. Sadie had always been a camera-on student. It's like she's waiting on me to do something. And God, she looks so frail, so weak. Her face is porcelain, slick with the onset of fever. But she stays in the call. I managed to respond, somehow not crying into the webcam. Be well, Sadie. You are good. I miss you. One last cut, smiling Sadie. Then she's gone. Mentally, emotionally, I'm reeling. I mean, what the fuck just happened? (sighs) I need time to process this, to make sense of it or explain it away. I (sighs) Somebody spliced that footage together, I tell myself. Somebody just pranked me fucking hard. I let in the rest of the class from the waiting room. I'm so late. But there they are, all 19 of them. Half of them won't do any of the work I put up in their Canvas module, but they always come. They've got nothing better to do, but they're here, and they're alive. I click my mic on, wink at the screen. Salutations, cyber hooligans. I crack a deliberate half-smile. Like the words I use to end every class, this too is tradition. You're here. I'm here. Might as well learn something. Fifth period, unlike my other classes, always answers the introduction. The answer comes first from my resident teacher's pet, an affable young student named Max. Might as well, Mr. Cussman. Then half of his classmates follow suit. It's my gifted group after all. Asynchronous learning is what's supposed to happen when the teacher either lets the kids leave the Zoom meeting to work independently or sends them into their individual breakout rooms to complete whatever the job is. I use the breakout rooms. That way I can click into those rooms and have one-on-one student conferences if I need to, and the kids can still call on me for help while working in their quiet space. A teacher can also set them up for group work that way. Most of the second half of class is typically asynchronous. Today, I'm putting the kids in individual rooms, and I don't plan to ambush any of them with an impromptu conference. I've been getting email alerts every few minutes for the past half an hour, and I haven't checked any of them. I still need to answer the standard spate of -of end-of-the-quarter parent emails, too. Anything to keep my brain occupied. Work is good. Work is salvation. Or at least respite. Their images blink off. The breakout rooms fill. The blank rectangles generally disappear last, as several of the kids probably have their cameras dark because they're not actually in front of their computers. No new alerts on my phone. I check my work email. There, as expected, there's an all-staff email getting a ton of responses by fellow teachers who just can't help hitting reply all. (sighs) I scroll down to the source of the thread and open it. It's from the principal. It's flagged urgent. Once upon a time, that could have meant anything. 
Not so long ago, those flags meant there was another virus diagnosis among the students or staff. For the past several weeks, we've only gotten them for the deaths. There are just too many these days to hold an emergency Zoom meeting for each one. Michael Alvarado. Apparently he'd been sick from the newest strain for three weeks, the exact amount of time since he'd stopped doing his work. I thought he was one of the lazy ones. I thought he'd just given up. He had died, according to the email, in the dark hours of early morning yesterday. My breath catches in my throat. It's a solid 30 seconds before I can breathe again. Fucking hell? I click into the storage folder with the auto-recorded Zoom meetings. I open the chat transcript file and scroll to the end. There's no record of his presence there. There's nothing. I'm losing my mind. I'm out of control. I have to take my medicine. A text alert for my phone. I nearly knock it off the table, reaching for it. My hand shakes as I thumb the screen to life. Santerra Hospital Visitor Code 2878PT3V. Patient 2878, retrieval of personal effects. Gabrielle Cussman Smith. I take it in. Does that mean what I think it means? No. A new message alert. I go to voicemail, heart thundering, and nearly collapse out of my chair and onto the floor from sheer relief. (gasps) It's from her, and it's less than a minute old. But why hadn't I gotten the call? Why hadn't my phone rung? I go to the message. I tap it open, and I hit the speakerphone. The message isn't new. I can tell right away. It's spliced, cut to hell and back from her last few messages, just like Sadie's video from the Zoom call. You okay, Maddie? You all right? I'm fucking dead. I try to speak. I don't know why. There's no one here in the room with me. Even the kids are off in their own little corners of cyberspace. I just feel the need to answer her, even though I no longer can, even though she's beyond my reach forever. I only manage her name. Gabrielle? And she answers. Getting out? Call me home. Take me out. Take me anywhere. I nod, palming my eyes. There's no questioning her voice. I should have listened to her, answered her before. There's no denying her now. And I do have the visitor code. I'm coming, Gabrielle. I'm sorry. I am such a piece of garbage. Such complete shit for a brother. It's all right, little bro. Take me home. The screen goes blank. The connection lost. I blink through the tears, push up with my hands on the table and force myself to stand. My legs are still half numb as I lurch over to the bathroom to clean my face. My God, what a mess this whole place is. What a wreck. Everything the kids can't see on their screens is an utter disaster. I clean up, make myself presentable, then dump half the container of toilet cleaner into the bowl to just let it sit while I straighten things up around here, and not only in the apartment. I'm going to screw my head on in the right direction and salvage what I can of my life as well. First things first, I say to myself, a bit steadier on my feet as I go to my nightstand and root around for my medication. Back at the computer screen, 
15 minutes before I strictly should, I click on the breakout rooms button and click closed. The main lobby of the Zoom call populates quickly at first, then slows for the stragglers who don't come back by choice. They'll be dragged out of the vortex and back to the main call in one minute, which seems like an awfully long time just now. Gabrielle, she's waiting. And I wonder, still rather baffled by the whole thing, why are they all reaching out to me? I'm nobody. I'm a selfish, neglectful prick. But the kids are all still here, and I won't just disappear without an explanation. I wait for the last of the breakout rooms to empty and unmute myself. I keep the playful sarcasm out of my voice. Hey gang, I think you guys can take it from here. I've got a situation I've got to see to. Sorry about that. We'll pick up where we left off day after tomorrow, okay? I wave at them, expecting the wave back, the blinking out of screens. Instead, every one of my fifth period students stays put. Half of them on camera, half of them dark. None of them leave. Weird. I just dismissed a Zoom call of two cool-for-school teenagers, and none of them are going anywhere. Quizzically, I shake my head at the lot of them. Hey, what gives? Max unmutes himself. You didn't say it, Mr. Cussman. You have to say it. Again, tears threaten. Oh boy, I'm being a great big pussy right now, but that, that kind of strikes to the heart. To me, those words had just been a dismissal ritual, something I truly felt, but for all practical purposes, it amounted to a signal it was all right for them to sign off. But the heads I can see on screen are all nodding at me, all waiting. For them, those words are a protection, a blessing bestowed by an elder against a frightening invisible enemy. I place my hand on the screen. Today, they do as well. I let my tears fall after all. Be safe and be good. Goodbye, fifth period. The hospital parking lot is a wasteland, practically deserted. It makes sense. There aren't a lot of visitors. Patients are brought in by ambulance or medevac. They're either picked up, which is rare, or more commonly handed off in cardboard boxes to their next of kin. I'm holding mine right now. It's about the size of a shoebox, sealed shut by a hot glue gun. I'm staring out on the world from the discharge exit at Centara. I'm wearing my mask and a face shield, disposable gloves, and a clear plastic poncho over my clothes like it's going to rain or something. All of this, even though I've been vaccinated, I'm 95% safe personally. But I know I can still carry the plague. A secret stowaway waiting for an opportunity to pounce on someone less fortunate. I could still pass it on. And although these are the ashes of my sister under my arm, her physical self just two hours removed from her incineration, she's also standing at my side. She looks out on the world with me. She's wearing her favorite pair of sweatpants and a Judas Priest shirt from a show we attended together in the late 80s. The exact same things I'm also carrying in a bag in my other hand. She doesn't speak. Behind us, the hospital is alive with the frantic, desperate battle of every day. 
the front line of my town's struggle to outlast the insidious, relentless scourge of the plague that has taken so many of us. So much of our known world, our way of life, nothing will ever be the same. I turned to her, one foot beyond the doorway, heedless of anyone who might hear. Don't mind me, just talking to the ghost of my sister over here. Move along, move along. I'm sorry, I let you down, big sis. You needed me, and I wasn't there. She reaches out to me, to my face. The memory of her hand is warm on my cheek. But there's a wind blowing, frigid cold in the icy outside, the aftermath of another winter storm, and it takes her away. She dissipates before my eyes, as though becoming a part of that wind. But she leaves a trace of that warmth behind. All she had wanted was to hear my voice, for me to remind her she wasn't alone. All Michael had wanted to do was apologize when he had done nothing wrong. All Sadie had wanted to do was say goodbye. There's nothing I can do to change what was. All I can do now is focus on the days to come. Everything is so uncertain. But what I can do, I'm going to do. I'm going to clean that apartment up. I'm going to get my shit together. I'm going to see my mother somehow and make sure she's okay. Make sure she has everything she needs. Tell her I love her. I'm going to get ready for tomorrow. Got second period logging in bright and early. They're my most difficult class, but tomorrow, I'll be ready for them. Tomorrow, those kids are getting fucking quality A-level education, ready or not. They're going to goddamn well and truly know that someone out there gives a shit. And if there are any more ghosts in the Zoom call tomorrow, I'll be ready for them too. But I don't think I'll talk so much this time. This time... I'll listen. As we place the letters back in their envelopes, it's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. 
This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.